0: Isaiah chapter 61. We have been in a series kind of marching through Isaiah. The Old Testament prophet, I've told you, there is not a more relevant book in the Bible for the times we are living in than the book of Isaiah. Just a little context here, I've told you this, but God's people who have been called into covenant relationship with him have broken the covenant. They've turned their backs on God. They've begun to worship idols. As a result, God's judgment is coming and their nation is about to crumble under the weight of sin judgment. Uh, Enemies have come to line up on the border. They're about to attack and overthrow the government and march on the capital and uh, drag these people off into exile in a godless nation, Babylon, where God's people would be tempted to just be assimilated and blend into the culture and forget who they are and forget to worship the true and the living God. That's the condition into which God raises up a prophet named Isaiah, to announce, yes, you have sinned, judgment is coming, and it leaves this question, is there any hope for a people like that? Is there any hope? Is God going to forget his promises to his people that he would make them into a great nation and bless all the nations of the world? How is God going to get that done? There's a very important verse in Isaiah chapter 59. I don't want to race past it, but I want you to see the condition of what was happening in, in Israel at the time. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that he cannot save or his ear dull that he cannot hear. But your iniquities, your sin have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So the question is, how is God going to turn this sinful, idolatrous people back to him? How is he going to close the separation? How is he going to forgive iniquity? How is he going to wash them and cleanse them? And as I told you, we read chapter 53, where God promises he's going to send a servant savior a Messiah, and this servant savior is actually going to suffer as if he was separated from God. And we know looking back on this, of course, that was Jesus who came and on the cross, our iniquities were laid on Him and the separation between God the Father and God the Son took place on the cross. He became our substitute. That's what chapter 53 was all about. And then in chapter 54, we find out the results of that salvation, that God brings back the covenant relationship between His people and Himself. And then in chapter 55, last week, we looked at how all those who thirst for this kind of relationship with God can come and drink deeply of the fountain of living waters forsaking the broken cisterns that we dig holes to try to find something to quench our thirst if we will come back then he closes the gap of separation now that brings us to chapter 61 Chapter 61 of Isaiah is one of the most important chapters in the Scripture. How many times have I said that as we've marched through the book of Isaiah? But it is so critical that we even see Jesus preaching from this chapter in Luke chapter 4. I want to give you the big idea of the message here today. Here's where we're going. The mission of the Messiah is three things. To recreate a righteous people, these people that have been separated by God, these people that have been flooded with iniquity, this Messiah is going to recreate this righteous people that point all people on the earth to the Lord for the joy of the Lord. That's what we're gonna see in Isaiah 61 and 62. And so I wanna read here uh, just from that passage here for a moment. You got your Bibles open? Say, the Bible's open. And we're reading in Isaiah 61, verse one. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is speaking of the Messiah. There's going to be the spirit of God that's going to be upon this Messiah. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who were bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, speaking of church planting, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So, There is a mission that God has sent this Messiah to fulfill. If you were paying attention very closely, you saw seven very specific two statements. The word T-O. He is sending this Messiah to do seven things on behalf of this wicked, idolatrous nation to bring them back into Right covenant relationship with the Lord. By the way, the word Messiah that we use in the English language, it's not so much a word that you find in Scripture. There's actually two different places that is translated in the New Testament where we find the word Messiah, but we talk a lot about the Messiah. The Messiah, the word Messiah comes from the word that we find in chapter uh, 61, verse 1, where he says, The Lord has anointed me. To be anointed, means to be sent. It means to be given a mission. It means to be, there's something very specific that God wants this Messiah, this person to do. So the Hebrew word for anointed one is where we get our English word Messiah. And the Greek word for anointed one is where we get our English word Christ. How many of you know that Christ is not Jesus's last name? Did you know that? It's not a last name, it's a title. The way that we would say President Biden is the way that we would say Christ Jesus. It designates his mission. It's his job description. And so the Christ, the Messiah, is the anointed one that was given a very specific mission to accomplish. And we just read it here. It is essentially to save to rescue this wicked, rebellious people that have turned their back on their God. So the first point of the message we're gonna see today is the goal of the Messiah's message. Now, we've just read these seven different things here. And I want you to remember that here we are in the year 2021, reading a passage of scripture that was written 2,700 years ago, we are not the original audience to which Isaiah wrote this prophet. So I want you to put yourself in the DeLorean, go back 2,700 years ago, and I want you to imagine you are a citizen of the kingdom of Israel. God has been so gracious to call you of all the peoples of the earth and in enter into a relationship with you. And and you've got the 10 commandments. You've got the, five, the first five books of the Old Testament telling you God's law. Uh, you got all these great promises about how God's gonna make you into this great nation. It's gonna bless all the nations of the earth. Um, you're gonna inherit a land that he's promised. All this comes from promises that God made back in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham. You're a part of his descendants. And yet you're watching your nation crumble. You you are about to be carried off from this promised land into exile, where you're gonna be treated as a slave essentially. And you're wondering, are we getting out of this alive? Has God forgotten us? What about all these promises? How is he gonna get us out of this mess? That would be the question you would be asking. And into that context, The prophet Isaiah tells you there is going to be hope. There's going to be redemption. There's going to be a future for you. It would inspire you and yet you would be tempted. The things that we just read are too good to be true. It would be the test of your faith to believe that one day in the future, God is going to send this Messiah. You would not have known it would not have happened in your lifetime. You would not have known it would be another 700 years until a baby would be born in Bethlehem that would grow up to be this Messiah and accomplish these seven things. Do you know the story of Jesus? You know it probably from Luke chapter two. If you read the Bible, you read the Christmas story to your family on Christmas morning, you read from Luke chapter two. Do you know what happens to Luke chapter three? We went through the book of Luke a couple of years ago. Remember that? Luke chapter three, we are introduced to the cousin of Jesus. His name is uh, John the Baptist who announces that Jesus is coming. Jesus shows up as a 30-year-old now and he gets baptized. The spirit of the Lord descends on him in the form of a dove. Does that sound familiar? Did you see what verse one said? The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Luke chapter 3, the Spirit descends on Jesus. Luke chapter 4, God sends Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. He comes out alive. You know what the very next thing says in Luke chapter 4? Jesus went to church. It wasn't church, it was synagogue. It wasn't Sunday, it was Saturday. He walks into his local synagogue. He volunteers to read, and somebody puts a scroll in his hand. It's the scroll of Isaiah. He opens the scroll to a very specific place. If somebody said, you can read anywhere you want to, as long as it's in Isaiah, where would you have read? Jesus opens up. He said, open your Bible to Isaiah 61. And he reads the passage I just read to you. And then he says this. He says, today, this prophecy is fulfilled. And it's awesome. It says, he rolled up the scroll and sat down. <laughs> and the people were astonished. They're like, what do you mean it's fulfilled? We've been waiting for this Messiah to come. And it's you? I mean, isn't this like the little kid that was playing in the nursery a few years ago? And we know his dad and he's not that impressive. And, and you know what? In Jesus' next three years, before he was crucified on that cross, He accomplished the mission of the Messiah. He did all seven things that Isaiah predicted the Messiah would do. What were those things? Let's take them one by one. And by the way, it's not something Jesus did 2000 years ago. Jesus is still doing these things. We're now reading this in the context of knowing Jesus was the Messiah. We know we have Luke chapter four that tells us, Jesus said, this was about me. Isaiah was writing about me 700 years ago. Now we look back, we don't have to look forward in faith, We have to look back in faith, believing that Jesus did what he said he would do. And the first thing he said he would do is this, he would preach good news to the spiritually bankrupt. What we're gonna find in these seven statements is, we're gonna find a job description of Jesus. The first thing is on the job description, he was a preacher, he preached good news. But we're also gonna find out about how miserably bankrupt we are. The problem for people who do not believe in Jesus is the Messiah is usually not they it's not that they don't believe the first part, it's that they refuse to believe. This is the description of them in the second part. Before Jesus can accomplish his mission, you have to accept the fact that you are in need of a Messiah to be spiritually bankrupt. Do you see what it says? It said he came to preach good news to the poor. If you feel like you're rich and you have all that your that your needs are met and your money can do everything that you need it to do and you've you've got moral behavior that gets credit with God. You know, it's like Bitcoin in heaven or something, you know, and it's like you, you put credits in there every time you pray a prayer, or you come to church or you give some money, especially on a day when it's 20 below zero. I mean, you get extra credit for that, right? So it's like that you're, you're building up stock in heaven. If that's your belief system, then you are your own Messiah trying to save yourself. It's only people that see themselves as spiritually bankrupt that know they have a debt, a sin debt, so huge. They can never pay it back that need a Messiah that can preach good news. And the good news is you don't have to pay it back. Jesus paid it back on the cross because he's the only one that has any credit before God in heaven. The second thing he came to do is this. He came to bring healing to the spiritually wounded. And Jesus is still today bringing healing to the spiritually wounded. The idea here is that sin wounds us. Usually they're self-inflicted wounds. How I many of you have some self-inflicted wounds from some sins you committed? And it's like, yeah, if I could go back in time in the DeLorean and not do those, I would not do those. But I was a knucklehead. And somebody told me not to do those things because they would wound me, but I did it anyway. And now it, yeah, you're, you're a sin-wounded person. Not only are we, do we have self-inflicted wounds, we have sin wounds caused by others. Anybody want to share a testimony? It's amazing how we can share about other people's sins better than we can share about ours, right? You have some parents, you have some friends, you have some preachers that let you down and disappointed you, and it created a sin wound in you. And, and the reality is it's a mortal wound. It's going to kill you spiritually. It's what separates us between us and our God, and we need a healer. Not just a physical healer. Yeah, God save us from corona, but Lord, save us from our sin. That is the greater problem. And Jesus came to bring healing to those who had self-inflicted sin wounds that needed to be healed. Not only that, but Jesus is still proclaiming freedom for spiritual slaves. Sin is addictive. It takes away your freedom of choice. It takes away your ability to, to, to separate you. Eve, if she knew this, she never would have bitten the fruit. But once you taste the fruit, it becomes addictive. And all of us could share stories about things as like, yeah, I was just gonna kind of go in and sin once and I was gonna back out and never do it again. And that never happens, right? It hooks you, it grabs you, it traps you, it enslaves you. And we cannot set ourselves free from the inside out. We have to have somebody who comes and proclaims the prison doors are open. You can be set free. Jesus is still opening the eyes of the spiritually blind. Now, I want you to see something back in the scripture here. If you look down here um, in uh, verse one, at the end of verse one, it says, to proclaim liberty to the captives and opening of the prison to, the, to those who are bound. That sounds like the same thing. Liberty to the captives, opening of prison to those who are bound. But if you look down in the footnote, do you ever look at the footnotes in the Bible? It says, this is a hard verse to translate. The Hebrew language is a little vague on this. And literally, the better translation, what it really means, as a matter of fact, if you read Luke 4 when Jesus read it, this is actually what he said. He said that it... Um, is opening the eyes of the spiritually blind. Sin blinds us. It blinds us to the reality of God. It actually blinds us to the destructive nature of sin. It blinds us to uh, the fact that we're no more righteous than any other sinner on the planet. And so we need God to open our eyes. Sin blinds us. Satan blinds us. He, he puts a veil over our eyes so we can't see the glorious nature of Jesus, so that we can't see our need for a Savior. And Jesus is still opening the eyes of the blind. By the way, when you encounter unbelievers, would you have compassion on them as you would if you met a blind person? They, they may be running around bumping into things. They may be hitting you in the head with their cane don't get mad at them. They're blind. Have compassion on them. They can't see what we see. We have trouble seeing what we see. And so have compassion. In order for us to be saved, in order for us to come into the kingdom, God has to open our eyes. Do you remember before you met the Lord, before you were converted, how you thought you could see but when the Lord took the scales off and you could really see the sin in your own life and the destructive nature and how it separated from, you from God, it's like, oh, now I see. And now I see the glorious nature of Christ. I mean, the people that are sleeping in on Sunday morning when it's 20 below, they can't see this stuff. What drug you here is because you wanted to see it again. It was so beautiful to you. You had to gaze at it again. You had to get your Bible open. You had to wrap your mind around the beauty of Christ. That's... What happens when God opens the eyes of the spiritually blind? And then Jesus came to announce the time of salvation and the time of salvation is right now, 2021. It's still open. You know what Jesus is saying? The time available for this kind of mission of the Messiah opened up when Jesus read that scroll, Isaiah 61 in Luke chapter 4. And that time, that window of time has been open ever since. Let me tell you something really cool about Luke chapter 4. I'm trying to help you understand how your Bible connects together. This is why we read the Bible. It all connects together. Um, When Jesus read the scroll, he stopped before he got to the end of of verse 2. He was reading, he read verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and sat down. He didn't read the next line. What's the next line? And the day of the vengeance of the Lord. How many of you are glad that we are not currently living in the time of the vengeance of the Lord. Paul read it earlier in the Scripture reading. There's going to come a day when the time of salvation is going to close and we are going to experience the day of the Lord. We have no idea when that could be. That could happen before the end of this service. God could close the window of time and we could enter in to what Isaiah calls the day of vengeance of our God. Let me teach you something a little bit about prophecy. When you read the Old Testament prophecies, you have to understand uh, something like this. Look at this picture. Here's a a picture of of a mountain landscape, right? Now, when you look at these mountains, it just kind of looks like they're all together. But the mountains in the background could be hundreds of miles away than the mountains in the foreground. That's what reading prophecy is like. That's what chapter 61 verse 2 is like. There is a gap of time between the first half of verse two, the year of the Lord's favor, and the second part, the day of vengeance of our God. And so, when Isaiah is writing this, and the original author is reading that, it's like, is that the same day? Is that three minutes apart? Or is that two thousand years apart? They didn't know. We we don't know. We just know that we're living in the window in between the two advents of Jesus. So the first time Jesus came, he read the scroll and he announced the year of the Lord's favor. And we use the word year. It's not like a 365-day year. It's talking about a period of time. And we've been living in this quote-unquote year, this season of the Lord's favor. How do we know it's the Lord's favor? Because right now, if you will repent of sin and place your faith in Christ, you know what you get? You get grace, you get forgiveness, you get new covenant relationship with Jesus and you don't get the vengeance of the Lord. But if you wait too long and that season ends, there will be no opportunity for you to experience the Lord's favor anymore. You will enter into the Lord's vengeance when the opportunity for salvation will be over. And the great news is this, Jesus stopped before he read the day of the Lord's favor. And he said, you know what? The window's open, time's open. So I'm here to announce the time of salvation is right here, right now. Here's another thing Jesus is still doing. Jesus is still comforting those who mourn. Not because... Your team didn't make the Super Bowl. But because your sin has separated you from God, those who will take the humble posture of understanding God is so holy, He is so other, He is unlike me. And there is this huge gap between who He is and who I am down here. I am so sinful. And to understand how that brings humility in your life. Here's another really important verse in Isaiah. I don't want to skip by um, Isaiah 57, verse 15. Tells us something about God. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up. Does that sound like God to you? I mean, in heaven, on a throne, unapproachable. Incredible God, right? He inhabits eternity. He existed from eternity past. He will exist in eternity future. That sounds like God and whose name is holy. He says this, I dwell in a high and holy place. Does that surprise anybody? Is that news for anybody? Does everybody understand that God dwells in a high and holy place? But then he tells us there's one more place where he dwells. Not only in a high and holy place, he also dwells with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. There's two places God loves to saturate with his presence it's the high and the holy place of heaven, and it's in the spot where there is a dirty, rotten sinner who will admit it. I'm a mess. I can't save myself. I have self inflicted wounds. I desperately need this Messiah to come and meet me right here where I am. The gospel is not for people who have their act together. The gospel is for people who are of a contrite and lowly spirit who will humble themselves before a high and lifted up holy God and say, God, I'm right here. I don't know why you'd want to have anything to do with me. I don't know why you'd bother with me, but would you meet me right here, right now, in the condition that I am? That's what the mission of the Messiah came to accomplish. And there's one other thing. Jesus is still turning ashes into beauty. Look back here at uh, Isaiah chapter 61. He says in verse 3, to grant those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Do you know what he gives to people who are contrite and lowly? He gives them a party dress. He takes all that ugliness of sin and exchanges it for a beautiful headdress like you're going out to party. That's the mission of the Messiah. Here's the second thing we're going to see. The reason for the Messiah's mission. Notice down here, um, he tells us some great things are going to happen collectively to this nation, and there's a reason for it. It, At the end of verse 3, it says, So that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. I want you to notice those two things. Do you remember when Daniel Henderson was here for the prayer conference as we kicked off the year? And he taught us to pray in a a way that embraces this two-word phrase, so that. Don't just pray, God bless me. Add the two words, so that, at the end of your prayer. It'll change your prayer. God bless me so that you get glory out of my life. God, bless me so that my children can see the glory of the gospel. God, God, bless me so that our nation can know that there is still a God who can save. So that, right? So there's two so that's at the end of verse three. Do you see it? So that they may be called oaks of righteousness. So that... God's people will be made righteous. Um, As you know, I'm kind of commuting right now back and forth to Oklahoma where my mom lives and I'm going to take another trip this week to go see her. But when I was there last time, a couple of weeks ago, I took a walk back to my old elementary school playground where I have fond memories of six-year-old exploits on the playground in kickball. And so I went back and you know what? I, I walked across the bridge that I walked across every morning. And it was amazing. The bridge seemed so much shorter uh, when I was 53 rather than when I was seven. But I noticed these trees, these oak trees. Those oak, oak trees had gotten bigger. Everything else seemed smaller but the oak trees had gotten bigger. Interestingly, since the last time I was there, I've been all over the world. Those oak trees haven't moved. They're rooted. They're grounded. They're not moving anywhere. And God says, That's what my people are going to be like when they respond to the mission of the Messiah. They're going to be rooted. They're going to be stabilized. Nobody's going to pluck them out and move them over to Babylon. They're going to be right where I want them to be oaks of righteousness. The second reason that He saves, the second reason for the mission is down here in uh, the second part of verse 3. It says, So that he may be glorified. So there's two reasons for this mission. So that his people would be made righteous and so that his glory would be made famous. That's the reason for the mission of the Messiah. It's not just about us. God doesn't just save us from something, sin. He saves us for something, Our righteousness and his glory. That's the reason for this mission. And I want you to see the third thing here it says, uh, the joy of the Messiah's mission. The joy of the Messiah's mission. Notice here in verse 10, he says, I will rejoice. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God. Do you see the word exalt there? Notice that's not exalt. That's a different word. Do you know the difference between exalt and exalt? To exalt means to externally lift something higher, to elevate it. Of course, we exalt the Lord with our praises. We spent a significant amount of time this morning exalting the Lord as the Messiah, right? But to exalt is what happens internally in the person who exalts Jesus as the Messiah. To exalt is this overwhelming, unstoppable joy that comes from knowing our God wins. He is glorified. We are made righteous. It's all gonna turn out exactly the way he promised in the scripture. It says, I will rejoice in the Lord. So there's a joy that comes from the oak of righteousness, but that's not the only one. My soul shall exult in God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. So I want you to skip down to chapter 62, just real quick, look down at verse three. Because he continues this theme about this kind of wedding attire and this this bride and this groom. Are you getting a picture of of a newlywed couple that are rejoicing? Notice what he says in verse three of chapter 62. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Verse four, you shall no more be termed forsaken. Do you notice how it's capitalized there? It was a title, it was a name. The name of the people that had forsaken the Lord was forsaken by God. Remember, your sins have separated you between you and your God. You're a forsaken people. No more is that going to be your name. And your land shall no more be termed desolate. Again, it was a name. But you shall be called. My delight is in her. So, notice the joy of salvation is not just the joy who It's not just the joy of the one who is being saved, it is the joy of the one who is doing the saving. There is a joy in God's heart over those he saves. Your name shall be called my delight is in her and your land married for the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. As a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And you, and you, and you. Can you think back? How many of you are married? Raise your hand if you're married. Those of you that didn't raise your hand, how many of you would like to be married? Let's all get in a room after the service. We can work some stuff out, okay? (laughs) If you want. It's not that hard. Listen, um, last wedding I went to was uh, the wedding of my my son, Zach, and his new bride, Gigi. And you know what? Um, A wedding is a very scripted thing, right? I mean, you have to, it's, it's such a big ordeal. You have to rehearse it. And, and you have to have the people come at the right time and you have to know how to walk and when to walk and, and cues because it's, it's kind of a formal occasion, right? Did you know I have never been a part of a wedding where I had to script this? That just happens. That's just exulting over the fact that I got her and she's mine. And and you enter into this newlywed phase where you don't need marriage counseling. It just, somehow you just kind of figure out how life works. And then after a while, you know, marriages tend to drift from one another into like like this business partnership. And then after a while you get teenagers and you're just kind of running a bank and a hotel for your children, right? That's just kind of the way it works. But that's not the way it starts. This kind of love comes from knowing We're in a covenant, permanent relationship with the one that brings me the most joy on the planet, right? Do you remember that? Now, listen, if you need a little marriage counseling, we we can help you get back to this. The, The Lord has a lot of things to say about that. But the model for marriage is the covenant relationship that the Messiah has with those he enters into a covenant love relationship with. That separation, that divorce, that forsaking that happens when we turn our back on the one that loves us most, spiritually speaking, is restored when the Messiah comes to us and he says, I'm here to bring good news to the poor. I'm here to set the captives free. I'm here to comfort those who mourn. The invitation is open. The year of the Lord's favor is now. The time of salvation is now. Will you come? Will you respond? Will you believe the second half of everything that was on that list? I am spiritually bankrupt. I am mourning. I am sin wounded. Until you get there, The mission of the Messiah is not accomplished until you respond to that message. We've got so many great songs that we sing around here as a church. Did you know that, that I mean, Micah and the worship team, we, we are very, very particular about the particular songs we sing. There are certain songs we don't sing because the lyrics aren't biblical but there are certain songs that we sing because there are. There's there's a a song out there that some churches don't sing because there's a line in the song that freaks them out. The song is called Good Grace. And we sing it around here a lot. The line that's kind of controversial in that song goes like this, God is madly in love with you. That just kind of sounds like Zach and Gigi just doing like, you know, personal displays of affection. I'm like, is is God's love reduced down to just kind of a a, a romantic love that he has with us? Listen, God's love is not romantic, but God's love is a covenant love where he expresses in terms that we can understand how valued you are, how cherished you are, how treasured you are, and you need to hear that today. God loves you. You, no matter what you've done, no matter how much you've turned your back on Him, no matter how much you've gotten trapped in sinful, idolatrous, sensual things, if you will come to Him and say, Lord, open my eyes. I want to see You in all of Your glory. I, I, I've got nothing to bring but ashes and You're offering me a headdress and a party dress and you you actually wanna hang out with me? That's what God's good grace does. I want you to stand with me right now. We're gonna sing that song. (laughs) I knew that you probably knew that. We're gonna sing that on the way out of here. I wanna pray for us. And I pray that in this moment, you will see yourself as someone who is deeply loved by an eternal God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that though... Our sins have separated us from you. You long to restore us to the relationship that you intended. And Lord, the scripture that we've read today, 700 years after Jesus, you showed up and you read it again. And you, you read it as, a, as an announcement to us that you are the Messiah that we desperately need. And we come as a people with broken hearts, contrite in spirit, owning our sin, not defending, not excusing, not blaming our sin on others. God, we need you to save us every day. Jesus, you are still healing the wounds of sin. Would you do that today in us? And God, remind us of the deep love you have for us in spite of our sin. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.